Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. This is Dan Cotter on episode 23. After some technical difficulties with one oral argument on the court website for the NCAA case, which we'll discuss today, Pat and I have curated three cases for this show as always. The first case we, we curated them. We're like, we're like museum people now. Why, why not? Goodness. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll go with that. Curating. Curating. I like that. Give us a promotion. The, the word popped into my mind when I was thinking about this. The first case we will cover today is Westwood One versus NCAA. Yet another case dealing with the National Collegiate Athletic Association out of the Indiana Court of Appeals. The second case is County of Taswell versus Zimmerman, in which a public official is challenging the failure to name a special prosecutor. And the third case today is Folks versus Community Unit Unit School District 428, a case in which a school made a student run in flip flops. With that, let's turn to the first case today. Noted, our first case today is an Indiana appellate court case, yet another one involving the NCAA. For those that don't know, a good reason is that the NCAA headquarters are located in Indianapolis. The Indiana appellate website summarizes this case as follows. Prior to the 2019-2020 collegiate school year, West 1-1 Radio Networks, LLC, entered into a multi-year contract with the National Collegiate Athletic Association and NIT LLC to be the exclusive radio home of collegiate athletic championships, including the Division I men's basketball tournament. After the NCAA canceled the 2020 tournament, Westwood won, failed to meet its financial obligation pursuant to the party's contract, competing lawsuits, allegedly, right, right. Competing lawsuits were filed, and the NCAA threatened to void the remaining years on the party's contract, which was a long-term contract. And so Westwood One requested injunctive relief to stop the NCAA from voiding the party's contract. The trial court denied Westwood One's request for injunctive relief, finding that Westwood One had failed to satisfy, satisfy its burden of showing that such relief was warranted. On appeal, Westwood One contended that the trial court erred in concluding that it was not entitled to preliminary injunctive relief. And the parties did agree for this 2021 March Madness. And so uh, there were some questions, as Pat will talk about, around that when we talk about the oral argument. At oral argument, much discussion was, was had around the contract and the cancellation of March Madness in 2020. According to the contract, Westwood One was required to make a small payment in January and then a much larger payment after the tournament occurred in April. At the oral argument, there was much discussion around one part of the contract and goodwill around the NCAA's marks and also goodwill in the contemplation of a longstanding contract. Pat, tell us more about the oral arguments here, the first live ones for the court since COVID that were held at Purdue University. Thanks, Dan. Uh, and you're right. This was the first uh, oral argument they had had in person, and it's a bit of a traveling road show that the Indiana Appellate Court, Indiana Supreme Court do. They travel around uh, the state from time to time to schools, to 
community centers, all kinds of different places where they hold argument, in addition to their usual courthouse in Indianapolis. Uh, that's where most of them are held, but they do go around. Um, let's just say the justices were very happy to be back in person. It was less, normally appellate arguments are somewhat formal, uh, even more formal than ordinary trial court proceedings. And the higher level court you go, the more formal it is. Um, there's kind of that uh, hierarchy of formality. This was like a, they got together for a picnic and decided to interrupt it with an oral argument. Uh, it's sure like parts. <laughs> they were very happy to be together. So, uh, and they also were very much encouraging the parties. Why can't you people agree? Why are you making us decide this? We don't want to decide this. You people have been doing business together for 40 years. You agreed for this year, for 2021, to broadcast it. Why can't you, you got three years left on your contract. Why can't you people make nice? They don't want to make nice as it turns out. And, and one of the lawyers says, it's beyond my, beyond my, it's above my pay grade for, to make nice my job. I'm just the lowly appellate lawyer. Uh, the business people told me to file this appeal. So I did, uh, that's basically, that is what he said. He did. Uh, so the legal issues are, as Dan mentioned, so in January, Westwood one was obligated and did make a small payment in January, 2020 before anyone had heard of COVID-19. And then the NCAA didn't, uh, continue or postpone the event, it canceled it all together, right. which triggered different uh, provisions of the contract. Notwithstanding the cancellation, the NCAA knocked on the door of uh, Westwood One and said, uh, pay up, You're still, you still owe us. Many and millions. Westwood One said, excuse me, <laughs> you, you canceled. We didn't make any money. We had to return all the money to the advertisers. We're not running a charity over here. You're not either, and no, we're not paying you. So they sued each other. What all you know that makes sense. The the legal issues dealt with the ownership and meaning of goodwill. So the NCAA says it owns all the goodwill that Westwood One gets from broadcasting the tournament, which is substantial, I imagine. It Westwood really One claimed that they're and Westwood One claimed that their business is built on they not only broadcast the NCAA. Uh, basketball tournament. They also broadcast NFL football, which are probably the two biggest national sports broadcasting properties in the country. I think so. And what their argument essentially is, is they're able to go to broadcasters and able to go to uh, advertisers and say, we will bundle for you these two giant properties. No one else has these properties. We have them. And you and and basically force people to pay a premium for that, but also be able to offer a product that no one else can offer because they've got these two great pieces of content. Um, it's a good sale. Uh, you can go to the sports radio station in Chicago, New York, where you know Podunk USA, and sell this great product. Uh, if you're a sports radio station, there's usually more than one. It's what you're going to want to broadcast, and they're bringing you the two biggest things you could possibly want to broadcast of live national sporting events. Um, so that's the context. And then the question is, okay, what are the damages that Westwood One could get? So Westwood One asked for – they couldn't – They I, I didn't seem they were going for a temporary restraining order. It seemed more a preliminary injunction. It did. Without getting into all of the machinations of that, that is essentially – those are essentially, uh, for the uninitiated and be happy, that's essentially where the p 
parties ask the court or the petitioner asked the court to keep things as they are until we can have a full-blown trial on the issues. And a temporary restraining order is just as it suggests. Typically in Illinois, it's like 10 days with a 10-day extension. Oftentimes, the um, it can be extended until you get to a preliminary injunction, which is a more permanent but still not final uh, hearing. And all of that can be uh, appealed as you go along, which it was here. So we come back to our old friend standard of review, which is really the problem for Westwood One. It has a substantial uh, burden to show that the trial court abused its discretion in not issuing the preliminary injunction. So what do they have to show? Number one, they have to show that there's no adequate remedy at law. They have to show that they'll be irreparably harmed if the injunction doesn't issue. And they have to show that they're likely to win on the merits. Well, that is some burden on at the trial level, never mind at the appellate level. So what does it mean to have an adequate remedy at law? Think of it this way. Law is money and equity is the judge doing what he thinks is fair. Those are the two different things. So basically, because an injunction is, as I think we've talked about previously on the show, uh, with what is the definition of an injunction, does that open up all the realms of equity within a Supreme Court argument that we talked about uh, several months ago? is law is money. So what what can you get money? Can they replace you the money? And their point is, no, they can't because we can't put a price on the goodwill we lose if you people cancel this contract. And the court's like, well, nah, I don't know about that. There's only three years right. left on this contract. Tell and me you have, you a 40, have, you have a 40-year contract and, and you have a history also of the NFL and what the bundling does. So you, you have numbers. Exactly. They, they could figure this out. And they just, so that was one problem. Are they going to suffer a repo harm? Well, they're going to have a trial in September. That's right. a long time before the tournament. Right. You guys could figure it out. And then are they going to win on the merits? And they lost on that too. I mean, and, and that's kind of a situation where the court kind of predicts, hey, we think you've got a good argument, which is why you, it, by getting that, you're really getting the closest thing that courts give out to an advisory opinion. Hey, we think you're going to win. We're not guaranteeing it, but we think you got a good chance. And so given the short time left on the contract, as Dan said, and that this probably is calculable. Now, if it were 10 or 12 years left on the contract and the NCAA was going to cancel, maybe that'd be a different story. But where you're dealing with only three years left, they're like, well, you, you can figure this out. There's a price that can be put on this and the NCAA should pay it perhaps. Um, the other thing that's interesting, because they did talk about, you know, why don't you people work this out, act like adults? You guys did it once for this year. Why don't you do it for, for the remainder of the contract? They could order them, I presume, to, to mediation. Um, as could the trial court in the seventh circuit, there's a system that requires all civil cases to be mediated at the appellate level. Uh, there's two lawyers in that office that essentially hold you until you settle. Uh, and they are surprisingly very effective. So that's a, you'd think that when you get to appeal that that'd be a difficult thing, but that's another, that's another option that could happen here. Um, Dan, any other thoughts on this particular argument? No, you know, I, I think you covered it. You know, it's interesting because I sometimes I'm in the car when I when NFL or NCAA is on. And Westwood One is not like ESPN. It doesn't have its own dedicated national uh, network of, of radio stations. It kind of contracts with individual markets. And so you hear, though, this is uh, Westwood One, right? Westwood One NFL radio. And so the, the other thing I thought was interesting, at one point, one of the justices uh, said, you know, we talk about knowledge and, and what, what some of the justices bring to these oral arguments. This was the reverse because she said, you know, 
I don't know, Alabama or Kentucky or, or whatever, you know, she said, I don't know anything about who plays or something like that. So she was trying to get a sense of like what the, you know, if, if, if it mattered who was playing, you know, she really, I don't think understood that the NCAA tournament's just a big, uh, it's a big deal. Whoever's playing. Right? Yeah, no one cares. Broken. No one cares who's playing. They're playing. Right. They care that they're playing in this tournament. Right. Every, all of a sudden, everyone's an expert on, on low, on lower Eastern Western state. Uh, all of a sudden, everybody knows everything about that school because they're they won a game or they're competitive in a game against some giant uni, some giant state university or some basketball powerhouse, and all of a sudden, everybody knows the place. So it's uh, it's yeah, it, it's the event that is the thing, uh, not the particular schools that matter right. for most people, right? So and it's the bracket, it's the betting. That's the other part she didn't. Uh, yeah, it's 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 a lot right. about the office pool, right? The, uh, <laughs> Just as fantasy football has had a lot to do with the popularity of uh, professional football, it's had a lot to do with the popularity of uh, NCAA, um, uh, the NCAA tournament. As you said, everybody everybody's paying attention during March Madness to see if their teams won or their their in in game scores. You know if they have squares won, and so that is a big part of it. Indeed, there used to be a. In fact, there may still be a, a company that figures out how much productivity is lost. On the days of the tournament uh, for the first two weekend for the first two weeks when they play on Thursdays and Fridays, um, and with that we'll take our first break and come back with segment two, uh, County of Taswell versus Zimmerman, and you'll be surprised to find out who Zimmerman is. We're back for segment two of episode twenty-three of the Podium and Panel podcast. And uh, Dan and I are going to talk about a, a co- case that was heard by the Illinois Appellate Court 3rd District recently, County of Tazewell versus Zimmerman. This is a case involving a public official. There, apparently, there's a lot of Republican officials that don't like each other in Tazewell County. Okay. Tazewell County, for those that don't know, is a county that is just to the west of Peoria County. It's where that, that may not help you. The county seat is Pekin. Um so it's it's in central it's in it's in north central kind of Illinois, um, as would indicate by the fact it's in the third district, and there's a dispute between it's it's all Republicans down there apparently, and they all don't like each other in the same way all the Democrats don't like each other in Cook County and Chicago. There's just it's one party with a bunch of factions, same kind of idea here, and the county auditor uh, has a long running battle with the chair of the. Uh, county commission, and his name is that's Zimmerman. Zimmerman is the chair of the county commission, and she has a beef about him charging for mileage going to and from work to home for lunch and charging the county mileage. And he apparently had put the, this in for reimbursement for a long period of time, like 10 or 12 years or something, and she didn't like it and believed it was a violation, perhaps criminal in nature, and she wanted, and this, as I said, this has been going on since 17 or eight, 2017 or 2018. There's, this is not the first case of this kind. Um, and she's brought and other cases. You she's know, brought other cases. And him and others. In the meantime, she's both won, she's lost, she's won, she's lost, she's won, she's lost her battle or her, her, her seat in the meantime. And she filed this action because the state's attorney in, in uh, um, in Tazewell County, what didn't recuse himself, 
or herself. I can't remember if it's him or her. But anyway, they didn't recuse themselves uh, because they would be on both. Their claim is they'd be on both sides of the V. That is, they would both be prosecuting the case as well as defending the public official because that's the job of the state's attorney. So there's a statute, 55 ILCS 5 slash 3 908, that deals with the appointment of a special prosecutor when, for some reason, the state's attorney in the county is unavailable. And there's one section that deals if the if the if the uh, state's attorney is sick or absent or unable to do their duties. Okay, that makes sense. They're infirm in some way. That the that if they are an interest, they're interested and have an actual conflict. And then they may also be a petition to they can also recuse themselves. Well, that the first one and the third one didn't happen here. He didn't recuse himself as he had done previously, and he wasn't sick. So then there, there was a lot of discussion here and a lot of uh, reference to the rules of professional conduct, Rule 1.7, that deals with current clients, uh, the county's code, the special prosecutor statute, as we mentioned, and a distinction that seems to be in the case law but doesn't seem to find its way into any other area of the rules of professional conduct that I'm aware of between a per se conflict and an actual conflict. My view of the world is there are waivable and unwaivable conflicts. That's there right. are some conflicts that are so bad, you can't waive them even with informed consent because the lawyer will be unable to do his job uh, for one side or the other. The, the, the courts or the parties talked about Marshall versus Cook County, in which the court held a court's decision to grant a motion to disqualify will not be disturbed absent an abuse of discretion. There we go. Standard review again, folks. So this is a case where the court dismissed the petition for a special prosecutor uh, filed by this person, uh, by, by this auditor, uh, on a 2615 that we talked about on a previous episode as a motion to dismiss. And one of the questions was, is this a, uh, what's the standard review? Is it uh, de novo or is it abuse of discretion? And the, the lawyer for the appellant argued that it was um, abuse of discretion, or strike that judgment that was de novo because it was a legal question as to whether there was a conflict or not. The, the argument got really good and the appellant's argument got much better in the in his rebuttal argument. The last six or seven minutes of the argument made a whole lot more sense. Right. Um, he was much more focused. And one of the justices asked, because he's she's like, I don't understand. Are you asking us to sit as the ARDC? The ARDC is the Attorney Registration and Disciplinary Commission, which is a commission set up by the Illinois Supreme Court pursuant to its authority to regulate lawyers. Are you asking us to punish this fellow? Are you asking us to decide? So I'm not asking you to punish this fellow. I'm just asking you to say that he's that they've uh, that there has to be a special prosecutor. So Dan, there's a lot there, and there's more. There's more still. So why don't you tell us more about the case? Sure, thanks, Pat. And you know, one of the things that you talked about is that A5 of nine zero zero eight talks about sick, absent, and the appellant made a big deal out of the language or otherwise unable to fill his or her duties. And there was a lot of discussion. Well, isn't this sick or or related? Like you said, for other physical causes, that seems to be a five. And and the appellant said no, that should be broader. It was changed in 2016, I believe it was, to uh, add that language. Um, as you mentioned, the now former auditor for the county, she filed suit against various county officials. She accused Taswell County Board Chairman David Zimmerman of filing improper mileage claims. And generally, if you're if you're a worker, 
traveling to and from work if you're a salaried employee. You can't get that as a business expense. That's just kind of part and parcel. So uh, they may have been on to something there. Uh, there was a lot of discussion, as Pat mentioned, uh, by appellant of three separate laws or rules. The first was the Illinois Rules of Professional Conduct 1.7, as Pat mentioned, dealing with actual conflicts of interest. There was the county's code that talks about conflicts of interest. And, and uh, uh, then there's the special prosecutor statute that talks again about uh, when, when special prosecutors can be appointed. And that's the statute that has the various uh, means for, uh, for appointing that special prosecutor. And as Pat mentioned, that was the, the only case that seemed to be even close on point uh, that they talked about was Marshall versus Cook County, uh, that uh, there, there's much discussion by the appellee regarding actual versus per se conflicts, as, as Pat said. Uh, the Marshall case held that a trial court's decision to grant a motion to disqualify will not be disturbed absent an abuse of discretion. So there you got the abuse of discretion. A per se conflict of interest exists when the same attorney ap appears during the same proceedings on behalf of different clients. And so here, um, you know, it's not clear that there's a per se conflict. The one thing that I, I thought was a, was a potentially strong arg argument of appellant is that prosecutors don't defend uh, typically, at least in criminal proceedings, right? That's the public defender or uh, private criminal uh, attorneys. And so uh, that'll be interesting to see how the court handles it. Well, but the job of the state's attorney under the county's code is that they represent the uh, county officials in their official capacities, which this would be. And so he would be on both sides of the V, or at least that's the yep. contention of the appellant, is, is that he'd be both prosecuting the case as the state's attorney, but defending the person as the um, as in his capacity as a as a state as a state or a county official, right? And as you you know, one of, one of the things that's interesting here is that if you look at one seven, if if this were a private matter, uh, you know, if if one of your partners was was found to have a conflict, you can't then say, well, Pat will handle the case because one of his partners has a conflict, and so uh, it was an interesting argument, I think, and. Uh, as Pat said, one of the justices really on rebuttal said she was confused, and she said, "You know, uh, when you look at the case, uh, what what you know, our role is designed to be a court of review, not a retrier of fact. Uh, this is an abuse of discretion. We're not the ARDC. We're not here to determine whether uh, you know the prosecutor violated the code, that there, and that there's a remedy for the prosecutor's failure to res you know respect uh, the conflict or recuse." And that, you know, that what what the appellant seemed to be doing here was to be asking this court of review to be an, a disciplinary body. Um, the uh, thing that also happened here, as is, is we talked about early on in on this segment, is that in another case uh, that was uh, involved, this former auditor, uh, the, uh, the appellant was arguing that the state's attorney flip-flopped here uh, because uh, there was another case where the prosecutor uh, did, in fact, uh, recuse himself. But what what the what the appellee talked about in that uh, instance was that there were different facts and circumstances there, and there was actually a direct conflict at the same time because it was there were various parties were at odds with each other, and so uh, the state's attorney could not successfully uh, represent all parties. Um, and, and again, Rule One Point Seven was cited. Again, if it, if we're if this were a private case, you know, the, the there's no doubt that uh, 
you know, there, there probably would be a, a conflict or, or the appearance of a conflict here, and you'd have to get either get a waiver or, or move on. Um, and as Pat said, you know, the, the big question that, that was being asked by both uh, advocates was whether it's an abuse of discretion uh, or de novo. I cited the, I quoted the, the uh, Cook County uh, Marshall case that talked about that this is a, uh, an abuse of discretion standard. Um, and then one of the justices asked, and again, going back to conflicts and waivable conflicts, as Pat said, waivable, non-waivable, one justice asked whether it would have been prudent to seek and obtain a waiver here, and then they could have moved on. Uh, another justice raised questions about the cost and expense of hiring a special prosecutor. And, There's and a policy county. issue in the background. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And then, uh, as I mentioned, the appellant argued that prosecutors cannot defend county officials in criminal matters. You know, for this case, you really have to start with where the counties fit in the system of government. They're, they're uh, state entities, and their powers are defined by state statutes that we talked about. Uh, the term at the founding was was corporations, and there's still, if you look at uh, Chicago, for example, the top attorney is corporation counsel. So there's still some of that flavor in our, our municipalities. And, and then... Uh, as Pat said, the, the rebuttal was really the strongest point here and the most effective for appellant. I think he really, in, in the seven or eight minutes, he had a long uh, rebuttal, even though he was supposed to only have four minutes. Uh, he was kind of indirect and meandering in his, his opening and, and, and uh, got much more focused on rebuttal. And he pointed to that amendment to the statute that we men mentioned, narrowed it. Um, you know, and, and, and again, this is the state's attorney. Uh, on both sides of the case. Any other situation, again, if this were a private matter, it wouldn't be allowed. And then and that's you know, why the, I really don't understand why there's a different rule. The rules of professional yeah. conduct govern a lawyer, whether right. he's in government practice or not. They're, right. they're generally speaking, I mean, there are some exceptions for government lawyers for, for obvious reasons, but this is not one of those places. Yeah. If, if the firm, in this case, the state's attorney's office of Tazewell County is disqualified, then the firm or the state's attorney's office of Tazewell County is disqualified. Right. It's not like it's it just because it's Dewey, Cheatham, and Howe. They have, there's one rule for them, and there's one rule for the state's attorney at Tazewell County. There's right. one rule. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, and that's a, go ahead. I'll go ahead. And, and and so that brings us to you know the the more most famous, at least for those of us that live in Chicago, uh, instance of a special prosecutor is the Jesse as the Jesse Smollett situation, where Kim Fox recused herself, but didn't recuse the office. Again, it's, I, I never understood how, how could she recuse herself yet still have her office involved? Right. I, I, there was the point made at the size of the state's attorney's office in Cook County relative to the size of the state's attorney's office in Tazewell County. It's like 700 to 17. Okay. But just because I have a big law firm doesn't mean that the he, if the head of it is, is disqualified, either because uh, for whatever reason, in, this, in, this, in the Smollett situation, she recused herself because of an appearance of impropriety. She, the, how that didn't disqualify the rest of the office, I never understood. And ultimately, there was a special prosecutor appointed. Dan Webb was appointed, but it took somebody filing a case. And there's one of the things we forgot to mention. There's an issue regarding standing. Now, in the Jussie Smollett case, it was a retired judge that brought the action in her private capacity that asked to have a special prosecutor appointed. And as I said, Dan Webb was appointed. Um, in this case, they asked, well, how could she have standing? Um as a uh, public official and said, well, whether she has it as a public official or as a private individual, either way, she has a right to bring the, bring the action. If the, if he has a conflict, he has a conflict and he can't proceed. Right. I, I, I think, I, I don't think this case is going away on standing. 
I don't. I don't think so either. I don't think so either. But you it know, was fine. addressed, and that was a, it was almost like a Supreme Court argument where they brought up standing in the first couple minutes. They did. They did. And finally, you know, I think this this case raises very interesting questions of separation of powers and lawyer regulation. You know, the Constitution gives the judicial power uh, to the you know uh, to the judicial branch, and the Supreme Court has acted with rules of professional conduct, as we've talked about. And, and those rules do apply. When you read them, it doesn't say you, if you're a private attorney or if you're an in-house or you're a government attorney or a, a professor, you have different codes of conduct, right? It's the codes of conduct for Illinois lawyers. If you're admitted as a lawyer to practice in Illinois, you have these rules. So it'll be interesting to see what the what the court does here. Yeah. And, that, and, that, and one last thing to build on that point is that Illinois has, in its in the Illinois Constitution, a very explicit separation of powers. It's not this ephemeral thing like in the federal Constitution. It explicitly says we have the judiciary that has the judicial power, the legislative that has the legislative power, and the executive that has the executive power, and nary the twain shall meet. Right. And an area where the Supreme Court has acted is to write the rules of professional conduct. And so where there's a conflict between what the county's code says that the legislature has passed and the Supreme Court has acted in the rules of professional conduct, which wins? It seems to me, and it seems that the argument of appellant was, the Supreme Court wins because they regulate lawyers, and that deals with the administration of justice, and that's the purview of the Supreme Court, period, end of story. And I have a sneaking suspicion that if the Supreme Court is asked about that, they're going to tell you, yep, we win. I, I think so. <laughs> Not surprisingly. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I, I agree. All right. And so with that, we'll take our second. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. Welcome back to segment three of episode 23. And our third case today is Folks versus Community Unit School District 428. This is a I'm case. I'm glad you had to say all that because I don't know if I could have got that out. <laughs> it's a it's a second district Illinois appellate uh, case involving questions of willful and wanton uh, conduct. Our friend government immunity, which we talk about many times uh, in the last several weeks, is involved in this case again. And this time it's a, it's taking a look at 745 LCS 10-1-210, defining willful and wanton conduct, which is a course of action which shows an actual or deliberate intention to cause harm, or which, if not intentional, shows an utter indifference to or conscious disregard for the safety of others or other, their property. And what happened here was that a student uh, during orientation, uh, whatever year it was, uh, was asked. It seemed, to be, uh, during, it seemed to be the child was a freshman in high school. It's, it sounded like it. They talked about a young child, and then it, it came out that he was a freshman in high school, which young, but not not a three year old or four year old. Right, exactly. Um, in any event, this this freshman uh, during orientation, uh, one of the teachers that was doing an orientation exercise that was not part of the physical education department, uh, told students to run uh, as part of some kind of orientation exercise. Uh, the student was wearing flip-flops, and he told the teacher, this is a bad idea. Uh, you're not supposed to run the flip-flops, and he was ordered to run anyway. Uh, 
the plaintiff in this case, it was interesting. It came out uh, during uh, the appellee's argument. Uh, the plaintiff appeared here to not have asked for leave for a second amendment to the, the pleadings. And so there's a lot of things going on in this case. There was an unwritten rule about uh, running in flip-flops or, or exercise, which seems odd. But in any event, it's an improper to plead evidence in a complaint in a fact-putting jurisdiction like Illinois. The appellant's lawyer made a big deal out of that, and Pat will talk about that. The second is, can a court remand a case following dismiss, dismissal with prejudice of a complaint where the court finds the complaint insufficient? But the plaintiff, again, did not ask the trial court for leave to replead. And, and there was one repleading. They, they said no to the second uh, leave to replead. And the third question is, what is the standard to plead willful and wanton misconduct against a teacher who required a student to run in these flip-flops over his protests? and which allegedly led to some sort of injury to the student. Pat, tell us about the arguments here. That, thanks, Dan. And um, the, let's start at the, the pleading issue. Um, counsel for appellant was insistent that you couldn't plead evidence in, uh, in, a, in a complaint. I don't know what he's talking about. I, I, I have never heard of such a rule. And when pressed on the point in rebuttal, I believe by Justice Zinoff, uh, she said, do you have a case that says that? Because I'm unaware of any problem with evidence. And he came up with this bizarre argument that, <laughs> pardon me, that, well, the court, the, the legislature had to enact section 2-622, which we've referred to before. That's the uh, affidavit that's required to be included with a, uh, Mo, a complaint for uh, for healing arts malpractice in order to support such a claim. Right. Well, that's exactly backwards. That's a heightened pleading that's required in order to state that cause of action. Um, that's it, it. It doesn't. That doesn't mean that you can't do it in any other case. And that was in his fact, argument, which is bizarre. It didn't make any sense. I mean, I, I file uh, complaints all the time where I attach evidence. I call them policies of insurance. Uh, they're required to be attached under Section 2-603 of the Code of Civil Procedure. Y if you're going to sue on a contract, you're required to attach the contract under which you're suing, a complete copy of it, or whatever part you have, you have to provide, or you have to provide an affidavit as to why you don't have it. So I really don't know what he's talking about. Now, that doesn't mean that complaints can't be stricken, stricken if they are what's called prolix, uh, that, or they're voluminous, or there's too much there, and it's it can't be answered, and it's a nonsense. That's one thing, but that's not this. This was, hey, why don't you give us what, some reasons why you think this is willful and wanton? And so he, they attached like newspaper articles and, right. and, and popular media outlets and things about why that was, and and the judge, the trial judge, just wasn't buying it. And then, which brings us to the second part, when it came to it, they didn't ask to replead. They said, no, just dismiss our complaint with prejudice. We're going to go up on appeal which is an interesting take. Uh, I, I've never, I've very rarely have ever had a plaintiff say, yeah, we'll, we'll take this up. Don't give me another chance to replead because you can always argue that the court should have given you relief to replead because there's other things you may have been able to plead that may have been able to get you into court. Right. So I don't understand how a court could, aff could affirm, well, they, they would have to send it back to the trial court uh, and, and order them to allow him to, uh, do something that he didn't ask for, number right. one. 
but they'd have to do that it. in the context where they found the complaint insufficient. So I, I just don't understand how that 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 works. And then we come to what is required to prove to plead willful and wanton misconduct. And, and Dan read the definition that's out of the immunity statute, and that's pretty much what it is in, in the common law. And I think it comes down to one word. I think what word we're all familiar with, which is recklessness. Right. It's reckless disregard. Um, is it really reckless to tell a child to run in flip flops? It may not be a good idea, um, but I will tell you this: as someone who hikes out west every year or most years, uh, I've seen people trail run. A lot of people trail run in flip flops and say it's a good thing. So I'm not so convinced that that it's such a bad idea. That's not something I'm going to do. But and then what forms the basis of of willful and wanton misconduct? Uh, it, it seems, you know, can you look at this unwritten rule about not doing uh, activities in, in flip-flops? This sounded like this was not a physical education teacher. This was like the history teacher right. or something. Right. And he's like, no, just go run around in a circle. Why they were running, I don't know. That's some orientation. Uh, <laughs> orientation to, I'm not sure what. Uh, but that's what they were doing. And, and apparently this child child got, got injured. I, I, I just don't know what the plaintiff is trying to prove here. No. I, I don't know why they didn't ask for to replead. I don't know uh, uh, why they didn't plead the more evidence, if, they, if any evidence, if they had it. Um, I agree you don't have to, but I don't think there's any problem with doing it. And, and let me add, I say that not because I think they're bad lawyers. These are two, the appellate counsel is an excellent lawyer yes. and, the tri- and the trial lawyer is an excellent lawyer from excellent firm. So right. maybe I'm all wet, but in my experience, I, I, I don't see where they're going here. Um, these are two excellent lawyers from two excellent firms that know what they're doing. And I just didn't see where they were going in this particular case. We'll see what the appellate court does. No, and I think, I think you're right. I think the panel was confused as well and really was trying to figure out, well, why did, why did you not ask for leave to replead? The other, the other thing that did not come up, but you know, when I was on the local school council for, for my kid's school, I mean, one of the written rules was no flip-flops just in general because it's a bad idea for students to come to school trudging and walking from wherever they're walking with things that are not really more intended for showers or whatever, you know, you know, especially the Open toes, you can get injured, this right. kind of thing. But in any event, uh, I agree with you. I don't, I don't know where, where uh, the appellant's going here. I, I don't know. Uh, and with that, that brings us to our prediction, sure to go wrong, Dan. And we're now at the Sweet 16. We're now 16-0-2. Following the decision of the Illinois Appellate Court 5th District in McAnally versus Gully, this was a recent case in which we predicted an affirmance. This was uh, a case where, uh, after find that, finding that bringing the motion under Section 2615 was proper, the court held that the statements in the letter, this was about defamation uh, per se, where the guy was alleged to have trespassed on his former employer's property, and it posted all kinds of Facebook, and, and he was the one that was alleged to have disclosed the letter in the first place. Uh, but the, the the decision and discussion uh, that we talked about on, on our episode in this case was per se defamation versus innocent construction. Uh, the court held there, there was not an abuse of discretion in denying leave to amend, as the plaintiff admitted he could not plead economic damages uh, to plead and this was a case where they actually asked for leave to right. amend. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. And this was that uh, case, again, where the warning letter was sent to the appellant. Which so was statutorily that, required. Right, right. 
you had to give notice before you could pr proceed. So with that, Pat, let's make predictions sure to go wrong in the cases we covered today. First one was uh, NCAA versus NCAA. Westwood one. Um, I, I, I don't see how, I think they're going to trial in September and I don't think they're getting their injunction. I, I agree. And I, I think, I think the, the uh, panel was very clear that that seemed to be right where this was headed. I mean, they, they said you, you got a trial in September and I know uh, Westwood tried to argue, well, you know, we won't know about the NFL by then and the impact of that if we don't have a future contract, but it seems, you know, very speculative to, to be arguing those types of things. Right. And, and, and the Especially other thing is, they told us they couldn't quantify the amount of damage. So how, right. how I, I don't understand. I, and the other thing is, is Goodwill is usually a concept where when somebody, the only time that in accounting world you can actually put Goodwill on the books is when you acquire a company and you pay $10 million and it's worth $7 million in tangible assets that you can identify. There's $3 million of Goodwill. That's the only time that Goodwill actually appears on the books. So generally you don't see like, you know, this would be, uh, it'd be pretty strange, right, for contract interpretation. There's no Goodwill kind of calculation of damages and and contract disputes, so it would be, be very bizarre for the court to go there. It would be unique, but I'll also say that Westwood One, as I think we've discussed, is a unique business. It a is. a unique position in the market, and they offer a unique product. And so I, I, I think that's where they were going, is, is that they're, you're really, we're not unlike everybody else. Right. So we have to be treated differently. Uh, that's difficult. Uh, that's oftentimes difficult to win on. That is. Don't treat anyone else like this. Just us. That's that just typically a, doesn't go well. Right. I mean, it can work, but not always. Right. Um, that brings us to Taswell versus Zimmerman. Uh, they're going to be a special prosecutor. Uh, I don't think so. For, from the arguments, I, uh, I'm doubtful. It just seemed like the the uh, the, the, the the panel seemed skeptical. I think. Do you think so? I, I sure think there it should be. It I seems to me a clear-cut case where this is exactly the kind of thing that uh, would call for a special prosecutor. I, I But I think they're going to get caught up on the standard of review and be really flummoxed by that. There, there's there's good arguments for why it's it's it could be either, and there may be a mixed question. Um, but... I think at the end of the day, the policy decisions they've got in the back of their head are going to be, you know, this is going to cost the county a lot of money and we should maybe we shouldn't uh, impose that. So I think it's probably an affirmance, even though that wouldn't be my that wouldn't be my choice. I'm the same. And, and it may not be theirs. It just because if they find the standard review is abuse of discretion, then they're kind of stuck. Right. I agree. Um and that and brings folks, us to folks, folks versus uh, uh, community school district four twenty eight. Affirmance. I think it's an affirmance. And I'm not sure. Again, we're not sure what's going on here, but I, I think an affirmance is what's is what where that's headed. And you know, as as we've talked about, you know, uh, parties have to ask for things, right? We talked about that last weekend. You don't uh, ask, you don't get. You don't ask, you don't get. And here. They specifically were asked something, and they said, "Nah, we'll we'll not take it. We'll go on appeal," like you said. And that to me seems like a dangerous road to road, road to hoe for them. So it, it is. I, I've I may have said this before, but I've had judges. You know, my job is to ask. Your job is to judge. You know, and 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 you don't have to just because you. I get motions denied all the time. I mean, that's just the nature of 
going to ask right. things. Sometimes you're not going to win, uh, but right. you have to preserve your record. You've got to make your showing. Um, that's what this is. That's part of the job. And you, you don't expect to win everyone, but you have to make, you have to make your, you have to make your request. You don't ask, Absolutely. you don't get. That, for sure. That takes us to the rule of the week. And today we're going to take a look at it at Illinois Supreme Court rule 341 H6. And again, the Supreme Court has authority to create rules for the judiciary in the state. And th that rule provides the appellee's, appellant's brief shall contain the following parts in the order named. Uh, six is statement of facts, which will contain the facts necessary to an understanding of the case, stated accurately and fairly without argument or comment, and with appropriate reference to the pages of the record on appeal and the format is set forth in the standards and requirements for electronic filing the record on appeal. 341H acts as a guide for what an appellant brief should look like. Pat, do you want to discuss this rule, particularly uh, subsection 6, which led to a motion to strike a brief in a recent case? Thanks, Dan. Uh, I, I think it's important to keep an idea of what of part of the job of the uh, of the appellate court is they get a record that may be voluminous. It may have you know, many, many volumes, each of multiple hundreds of pages each. And as the appellant, your job is to kind of set out a roadmap for what the case is about factually. And that has to be done without argument. And that was the problem that if it's done with argument, then there can be a motion to strike it. And that's what happened in a case that I'm going to write about in my column for the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin this week, Camelot versus Burke. Burns and Pinelli, and the uh, the appellee moved to strike the brief because the statement of facts had argument in it, and you have to not only um, not have argument. You now just because it doesn't have argument doesn't mean that you don't give the facts you think are most important and you don't arrange them in a way that's most favorable to you. You can argue without arguing. That's the that's one of the arts of writing an appellate brief is setting up the facts in such a way and giving the facts in such a way that make it, you lead the reader to the conclusion you're going to want to get them to when they get to the, your argument portion of your brief. Cause you got plenty of time to argue you, but you can't do it in the, and the, you can't do it in the record. Now, the reason I bring up the volume of the record is this as, as to have appropriate references to pages of the record. That's not only to make sure that the, that the lawyer isn't making stuff up, but also so it's easier for the, the court and their staff to find what you're talking about because they're going to take that and use that potentially to help them write their brief. You know, this has only happened to me a couple times. I haven't done a whole lot of appeals, but I've done enough. You know you've done a good job when they copy and paste your brief. I've had it happen. It feels great. You're reading it and you're going, I've read this before. Oh, I know why I've read this before because I wrote it. Uh that's when that you, you know. You, that's when you know you've done good, uh, and they they will take out and they, they'll take out sections of your, uh, particularly the statement of facts because you've done the work for them. If they if they like it and it works, they'll they'll use it, and it does happen on occasion. It's very satisfying when it happens, but that's why this section is really important. It's it's really to help the court do its job and the staff do their job. They've got a big volume. They've got cases with tons of facts, and this is a place where you can be helpful. And if you're not. You're going to have a problem, and that's also why the appellee, in there, they can they can fill in facts if they think you've left some out, even if you haven't violated the rule directly. Say, hey, you, they've left this, this, this out, or 
you say, we think they did fine. And then you move on because you don't want to waste the court's time in setting out a statement of facts if it's unnecessary. So with that, Dan, um, I think that brings us to the end of the show. It does. Well, great. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. We'll look forward to seeing you next Sunday on episode 24 of the Podium and Panel podcast. Have a great week. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast, we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.